Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 120. We are joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we've been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, filling in for my normal co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, this is the much-awaited part two of our conversation with David Klee. Last week, we learned about his career history and how this idea of constant tinkering with different kinds of technologies kept him sharp and helped him become a very good specialist. And he decided against hyper-specialization, but chose a specialization that still allowed some knowledge of adjacencies, making him actually a little bit of a generalist at the same time. This week, David's going to tell us a little bit more about how he ended up starting his own company, why that was the best direction for him, and what's it really like to own your own business. Even though he had worked for a consulting firm before, owning and operating one brought some more blind spots than perhaps he realized. He's going to share some thoughts on COVID and how that impacted him, his business, and created an opportunity for him to add a new business to the family. And toward the end of this, David's going to give a little bit more advice on what you should do if you find you want to be a specialist. And if you want to start your own business, he's a great guy to talk to. So here we go with part two and the conclusion of our interview with David Klee. You're at this firm that does consulting for databases and everything underneath. You mentioned SQL, you mentioned virtualization platforms, getting into storage, networking, even Oracle, right? Yep. At what point in there does it begin to touch public cloud technologies? It was right around, so here's the interesting part. It was right around the time that public cloud was just starting to emerge. And I was watching this stuff evolve. The company that I was at wasn't really that interested in cloud technologies. They were neck deep with VMware, and they they had a good thing going with them. They were looking more at license assessments, things like that. I wanted to stick with the more holistic, you know, give me the data, give me how it interacts, that sort of thing. And that was around the time that I decided I was going to start and go do my own thing so that I really had more flexibility to be able to explore public cloud, explore other hypervisors, explore things like hyperconverged technologies out there, and quite frankly, get back to the data life cycle where you know, you're part of the development, you're part of the foundation of a lot of this stuff to be able to help people engineer stuff from day one. Had you built up a portfolio of potential clients at this point? Were you doing anything on the side in addition to your day job that turned into this? Or did you just decide one day? We had, so I was traveling almost nonstop there for a while at that company. And uh, there were some family challenges with, you know, parents getting a little bit older, you know, nieces wanting to, I wanted to watch them grow up. And I decided I needed a little bit more control over the travel the other part there was I I had made a name for myself in the SQL Server and VMware communities through a lot of the social media, a lot of presentations at different events all over the place. Um, but quite frankly, at the last company, um, I had a very well-crafted, and quite frankly, it was a good non-compete. I'm, I have no issues with it, but it was strong. So I couldn't bring anything or anybody with me. I couldn't do anything on the side. And I'm again, you know, I expect that. But what I was hoping for was that the word of mouth from the technical communities would help get some decent income going fairly quickly when I went out on my own. And quite frankly, I got my first project on day three. And it was a large, fast, casual food chain that called up and they were having storage problems underneath their biggest database engine. And they wanted help to try to figure out why. 
So wow. the second week that I'm in business, I'm on a plane to the Denver area to go help them figure out why. It was amazing. Now, when you turned the corner and turned the business on, were you putting that on message boards? Where, where did you advertise that so that people would understand that, hey, I'm starting this? Quite frankly, blog post, LinkedIn, Twitter. That was it. There you go. The SQL Server community is tight on Twitter. LinkedIn's got some decent keyword filters. And the social media posts with just the network of people that I got to know in the SQL Server space, that that's what did it. And this was 2013-ish? Is that accurate? September 1, 2013. How did your family as a whole, like significant other, immediate family, feel about you making this decision, if I may ask? <laughs> Scared to death. <laughs> and me too. It's, it, I, will, I will say this in hindsight. I would not wish owning a consulting business on Anybody, as long as, unless you and your family are completely on board on what it takes. There's a lot of uncertainty. There was and is a lot of sacrifice that comes along with it. Um, the act of being self-employed in this country is really interesting. Uh, so, I mean, health care was a concern. Uh, sustainable income was a concern. Even the act of just getting a mortgage means you got to fork over 20 times the paperwork of anybody else. Yeah, little things that nobody would ever really think of. But you want to go get a, a mortgage loan, you're forking over 10 years of tax history. You're, you're turning over client lists. I mean, it's, it's silly. And I, I get it. I understand it. But there's just so much extra that comes along with it. So, yeah, the, the family was supportive. But it was one of those, we're going to give it so long and see how this goes. And if, if things aren't really starting to work by this end date, then we'll pivot and see what happens. But thankfully, things just kept going. Now, had you been what I would call a wise steward of your finances to that point in your previous endeavors? So you had a solid backup plan? We had a backup plan. We had some money saved just in case. Um, I, we were honestly figuring we had about a year that we could go without making an income before we would figure out if we need to do something else. And thankfully, the act of getting the business up and running is not cheap. Uh, you know, there's business formation, legal, all the stuff that comes along with it. Uh, so it wasn't cheap. But we started bringing in projects fairly quickly. And thankfully, right after we got started, um, took a contract with a hedge fund for about six months that ended up being very good financially for us. It was a great project, learned a lot. Um, but that stability of that project is what really helped stabilize things. That's good. Yeah, and that wasn't, that wasn't a pride, but more to encourage people, if they're going to go out on their own, Make sure you have some savings in the bank because, as you said, yeah. there are unexpected expenses. Oh, yeah. Did you talk with other people who had done the same thing before making this decision? I should say yes, but no. <laughs> it's, it's one of those – you talk with a few folks and everybody's perspective is completely different on this. You know, there are some people that I know that went on on their own that they had – a customer list ready to go. They were moonlighting on the side. Uh, you know, their previous employer worked with them and they were sharing work. I mean, you know, just everybody's experiences was different. Mine was I had a word of mouth reputation and I had a website and we had money for startup and money for a, a decent burn rate and a list of events that I wanted to travel to to try to market and help get the word out. And yeah, it's one of those, you know, I'll just be honest with everybody out there. If you don't have a plan of how to make your first few sales, don't jump into it until you're ready to do this. And the reason why, let's just say you start January 1. You'll land, hopefully you'll land a project by the end of January. So that means it's now late February before you can invoice, which means it's late March that you can collect usually. So at a minimum, there's three months lag time in there, not including all the costs to get everything up and running before you can actually accept the first contract with the customer. Because you have to have the contract created because all of these things are custom because the legal system is, quote, amazing. 
formation of LLCs, things like that. NDA <laughs> agreements, if you're going to have those. Master services agreements, statement of work, international agreements, all the stuff with the bank, all the agreements with the legal firm, um, you know, articles of incorporation if you're an LLC, business formation if you're an S-Corp, all this stuff. And it's all custom and it's all hourly. <laughs> I would imagine that maybe you picked up a little bit of this because you worked for a consulting firm before. Is that about right? For the most part, I understood the framework of what was needed. I saw a lot of the paperwork. I helped produce a lot of that stuff, you know, prior. So I got to see the pieces, you know, again, I had to have, you know, the lawyer draft it all, of course. Um, but I understood what needed to be in there. And the the lawyer that we had was actually really good. She said, okay, well, you need these protections in there. There are these things that we can skimp on. There's these other things that have to be in there to protect you and all the security stuff. You know, the interesting that I found out was that the legal system in the U.S. is entirely subjective. So you give the exact same paperwork to 100 customers, you have 500 completely different sets of edits that come back. And that, that's one of the things that I still find absolutely fascinating about this job. Every set of edits come back completely different. Wow. Just like every statement of work and every consulting engagement, right? Yep. And the majority of our projects are fairly short. So imagine the overhead of trying to work through all of those edits every single time. Wow. And you have to do all that while you're juggling the projects that are getting off the ground because I would imagine that you were the only person in your company at the time. Is that accurate? Yep. Um, there was myself. My wife was wonderful enough to help with all of the back-end work and the legal and that sort of thing. But I still had to have my hands in a lot of it because a lot of it's really technical stuff and I don't want to do that to anybody else. When before you started your own company and you were working for a company that we'll just say was kind of similar, were you involved in the sales process mm -hmm. and then the post sales implementation, right? Yeah, I did a lot of the pre sales there and learned a lot about how to talk to folks in a way that really best suited their role. And then I would either, you know, work with other members of my team to implement it, or I'd be the one to go implement it myself. What was your perception in starting your own business about basically being a sales guy? Even though you're super technical and can do all the work, was there this fear that people aren't going to want to talk to me because I'm selling my company services? You know, that wasn't really there because I treat pre-sales more as technical discussions where it's either here's a challenge and here's what you tell me you think you need. Let's talk through it and figure out if what you think needs to be done is actually what needs to be done. And just brainstorm. It's like, if, if this were my challenge, what would I do to go approach this? And either these are things that I've done before and here's the steps that I've done to go work through this, or these are things that I haven't done before, but this is the discovery that I would do to figure out what needs to be done. And, Either you like you like it and you want my help, or you don't. We're you know the the way I approach this, extremely low pressure. It's either you want my help or not. You know I'm not trying to talk you into anything. I don't do that. You know, I've never liked that, and I think that's part of the reason why I bring kind of a a set of candor to pre-sales discussions. It's not like the normal sales approach, and I think that's part of why. People don't have any challenges with, can you actually do this? It's because, you know, the pre-sales is basically the discovery of what do I need in order to actually go do X, Y, Z. Right. That makes sense. That's a good way to think about it. And I think people appreciate that kind of candor in those discussions. Yeah. Because in part of it, it validates their concerns. You know, is this actually a problem? And has this person encountered anything like this? And have they fixed it? And if not, is my concern actually valid? And I've had some pre-sales discussions where it's literally, yeah, here's your problem. Go flip this switch and tell me if it works or not. You know, and if it does, great. Buy me a burger at the next event. We'll call it good. <laughs> you know, other times they've got problems that are related to things outside of their visibility. So they think it's X. But because I've seen it before, it's like, no, that's not actually the problem. It's actually deeper than that with all this other stuff. And I think they like that. Yeah, you're bringing your expertise of many, many different engagements using these technologies to one customer who's using those technologies in a certain way. 
and you can see around the corners a little bit. That's fun. I, I love this stuff. Yeah, I can tell you love what you do. Uh, was was there any thought after you started your company that the specialization might need to change or adapt to the market need? Oh, always. That's how I name my company. You know that phrase, the only constant is change? That was coined by a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. So that's actually how I named my company, Heraflux Technologies. Not just the dot-com was available. <laughs> you know, I wanted there to be a meaning behind it. Every single day, I'm learning about new advancements. You know, like tonight when we're done with this, I'll probably curl up with a you know tablet and skim blogs. I do this every single night. Technology, I mean, literally the only constant in technology is the of constant change. And if you're in IT, you have to continue to evolve and change with it because if you don't, somebody else will and you are immediately irrelevant. You know, it's like in, it's talking about the specialization thing going too far. I had a friend of mine in college. He was gifted at Adobe Flash and Shockwave design. And that was all he did and that was all he ever wanted to do. Fast forward six years after I graduated, I find out the guy is running a, a rental car depot. He didn't want to change. And when the specialty that he was in essentially got canceled by the vendor, that was it. He didn't know what else to do. And he didn't want to go learn something completely new or an adaptation off of what he already did. And he decided he wanted a career change at that point. And that was frightening because he was good. He was really good at it. Yeah, we have to be learning about things in the same sphere of, of interest or specialization and maybe, like you said, just a little outside the bubble or tangent to yeah. just so that we have some insurance to slide into that if we need to. Yeah, the stuff that I'm learning now, I mean, I'm neck deep with the Microsoft data platform, but now, you know, Azure SQL Database, Amazon RDS, uh, Azure Managed Instance, those are all extensions of what you know, but I'm taking it a little step further. It's like the NoSQL database concept is fascinating, and I'm learning more about it, largely with MongoDB and Microsoft Cosmos DB, and they're really cool when it's the right use case, and I'm actually starting to revisit some of the the designs that I've got in my head for how to do certain things. Like I'm building a system right now where I can ingest performance data from a bunch of different machines. You do that with relational, you have a single point of entry and that's really a bottleneck at that point. I can do this with NoSQL and ingest the data in a bunch of different places, give it a few minutes and then pull it back out to do analytics on it. And I can do that in the cloud. I can do it far cheaper than the equivalent SQL server with its demands and then after a few minutes, I can just pull the data back into SQL Server and do all the analytics that I want, if that's the right use case. And it's it's fun. It's a new use case. It's something new to learn. And it actually solved a business problem that before was a lot more challenging for that particular point of ingestion. Nice. It sounds like the new things that you decide to learn are really more out of necessity to help your customers. I, I read a lot. I read a whole lot on what's going on in the industry. And when I see a technology out there that I feel like can solve business challenges in either in a new way or an improved way, I'm going to dig in until I feel confident to be able to talk through it. At that point, if I find actual use cases that I can implement for folks, I'm going to sit down in the lab and really dig in and go through what I would consider you know, the, the high end of the 300 level reviews. So get hands on with it, figure out the nuances, figure out what the marketing side of it doesn't tell you, you know, all those sort of things. And then now it's time to go implement this for some customers and make sure that this thing actually works as advertised, do some doing pilots on different new technologies out there and help them work through modernizing some of these things that have just been squandering for decades. If we take what you just said, how would you change that for an individual contributor working in IT that's a systems administrator, generalist today? What should they be focusing on learning next? That's a tough one because what you're interested in versus what you do for your day job might be different things. And I'm hoping they line up because that makes you a lot happier at your day job and it shows in what you do. If it were me, I would start to realize what makes you smile? What do you find cool? 
it may not necessarily be what your day job is doing today, but that's the stuff that I would start reading up on because a hobby today could become a day job tomorrow or at least a side project nights and weekends and lead to bigger and better. And if you find you enjoy it in tinkering, there's a high likelihood you're going to find out you really enjoy it once it becomes the full-time job. That's where I'd, if it were me, that's where I would spend my energy any day of the week. I think there's this, I don't know if it's a phobia, but when someone has this hobby that they're really interested in or a side project, right? And then they think about, well, what if my career were that? Like, let's just say technical marketing, for example. I really like to blog. I really like to present. Maybe technical marketing's for me. Well, then you get into it and you have to do it. And you may not always get to pick the content, things like that, that you put in your presentations and blogs. But yeah, good points. Definitely, if you can align the two, I think that helps. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, the the act of having the job is really, you know, how much of the day do I dread? How much do I enjoy? And if the positives outweigh the negatives, then stick with it. If you hit a point where the negatives outweigh the positives, then revisit the hobbies, revisit the things that you, you enjoy about that job and figure out if there's another role in the same company or a different company that can help you get back to what you really enjoy. And I think a lot of people out there are, they're, they're, they, they don't want to do the change that comes along with that because there are a lot of unknowns. But at the same time, if you're unhappy in your job, the people around you can sense it. The people above you know it. And it's bad for the business. It's bad for you. It's bad for your family. It's bad for your career. You know, and it's just, it's not worth it. Yeah, really good advice. I mean, sometimes we all have to have jobs to make money and feed our families. But if you have a choice and it's not something that, really sparks your interest anymore it's time to start looking around the blessing of covid19 if i can say such a thing is that it has proven that a lot of people in a lot of different roles around the world can actually work remotely instead of having to be there in person so let's say you're an it person in middle of nowhere South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, you know, someplace that doesn't have a high population or a tech center for what we do. COVID has opened the doors for you to be able to work with some of these bigger organizations successfully, even if you have to never step foot in their office or relocate your family and get rid of that entire network, you can now do this stuff remotely. And that opens a lot of doors. It also hurts a lot of folks who may be in the same town now competing against people halfway across the country instead of just halfway across the town. But at the same time, you can get a stronger candidate for a given role. And you as a tech person can now have more roles to pick from and more options and more technologies to kind of guide where you want to go in your career. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of those deals where certainly people asked about work from home options before COVID when interviewing. But I think maybe a lot of companies weren't really considering that as a decent option to yep. offer employees. Now I think it's going to be one of those table stakes questions in interviews. What's your work from home mm -hmm. policy? Do I have to come to this location? If so, how often? Will you pay mileage? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I see it with a lot of companies that we work with. They just culturally assumed that their people would slack off if they were at home or would work better if they're, you know, face to face with co coworkers in an office setting. And come on, we're in IT. We're almost all introverts anyway. And think about it. Is the data center in the next room? No. Usually a data center is in a different building or different part of the country. We're all remote anyway. So yeah, I mean, being remote has added to some handfuls of challenges, but it's also opened so many doors to prove to these companies that people can actually be effective remotely. You know, prior to the pandemic, I traveled between 150 and 250 days a year for 11 years straight. That's insane. Yeah. Um, for anybody out there looking to become a consultant, ask about the travel policies and make sure that your family are okay with that because that is a significant sacrifice. And again, I would not wish it on anybody because travel for work is not a vacation. You see an office park 
a hotel and an airport. That's almost exclusively it. You do get the local food, though, which is really cool. Yeah, that's definitely a perk. Yeah. But yeah, with the pandemic, my travel went from about 175 days a year to zero immediately. And it's proven that I can do what I do remotely. Some things do take longer. You know, I could go on site and do a 40-hour boot camp with everybody in the same room, and there were no distractions. And now I'm having to schedule out afternoons for people because there's so many distractions with everybody doing everything remotely that I can't get their attention for as long. But as long as you know that up front, you can deal with that. Was it challenging for you to go from 175 days a year to not at all? I mean, what was that like from a mental how I approach my day standpoint? It added more structure to it to some extent. I got my weekends back which was good because usually I'd spend you know about every other weekend doing some sort of travel which got old. (laughs) Yeah for sure. Um, But at the same time um, the act of when, when you and your body expect to be in different climates and different places and different cultures multiple times a month, it just becomes a way of life. And when now I'm seeing the same four walls every single day for month after month after month, after a while, you get that travel itch. If you if you enjoy it, you get that travel itch and you want to travel again. You know, again, I'll start traveling when the time is right, but I don't think I'm ever going to travel to the extent that I did pre-pandemic. You know, I could see a trip or two a month maybe, but not, you know, I, I would hop five cities in one trip. You know, yeah, there there was one that was Omaha to Chicago to Dallas to Vegas to Boston, and then I got to come home. <laughs> I'm sure everybody charges a premium for in-person engagements, but after the pandemic, you have to think that people could put an even higher price tag on that if they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those, I think you're going to see a new normal happen between work travel and on-site things, plus conferences and events. I would travel a lot for SQL Saturdays and regional VMUGs and different conferences. And those are the things that I think from this point forward, you are always going to have a remote aspect of that. And I think it's going to be a really interesting shift to see how the world really responds to that. I know I'm not traveling this calendar year, and I don't know about next year. I'm just really watching things week by week. But I'm watching different events that are saying, yeah, we're doing a big conference this November in Orlando. It's going to be great. It's like, okay, cool. Can I speak remotely? We'll see what happens. Yeah, I've heard some say that they may go back to in-person type events in September, or at least that's what they're planning. But what does that look like, and how will they ensure the safety of attendees based on where we are at that point? I don't know. Yep, all TBD at this point. So I'm I'm just playing it safe and not doing any sort of in-person really commitments until until I see something dramatically change. Now, let me ask this question. With you not traveling, did that contribute to the birth of Sequilibrium in some way? Yes. Can you just share a little bit with everybody what that is? Yes. Um, so essentially, I would do either boot camps or in-person training at different tech conferences all over the world. Um, you know, a lot in the U.S. I did one in Manchester, England, which was amazing. I did two of them in Barcelona, Spain, which was really cool. The lack of travel from the pandemic has really limited the in-person uh, education opportunities. And I'll do boot camps on you know, SQL Server and infrastructure and how they relate, you know, cloud migration strategies, capacity management. And we decided as a company that, you know, it's time to come up with an on-demand platform because the interesting fact is, in-person training will change forever from this. And people want the ability to listen to a session, go look at their environment, go back and take notes, go confirm in their environment. And the in-person stuff just didn't do it. So when I would do in-person stuff, I would be answering questions from people for months afterwards, which I enjoy, but it doesn't scale too well. 
So we decided as a company that I was going to take the biggest thing that I'm known for. The first one was honestly SQL Server on VMware performance and availability tuning and decided to add it to what we do. Now, the whole, the whole liabilities from a business between education and consulting and, you know, like online sales of streaming videos, believe it or not, is sales taxable. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of little things you never figure out until you get neck deep in it. And we decided that from a business liability perspective, it was better to have a different arm of what we do. So we decided to form a sister company called Sequilibrium and had a fun bit of a domain name brainstorm like eight years ago, uh, seven or eight years ago, and decided that, yeah, buy it and sit on it. You know, it's one of those things. It's like, hey, that sounds cool. Let's buy it and just sit on it and see what happens. <laughs> and um, bought it, decided to use it, and launched that February 4th of this year. Have a lot of fun with it. Um, had, a, had a group from Germany just connect in this morning, but it's eight and a half hours of on-demand training for SQL Server on VMware performance and availability tuning. Um, the next three modules, or not modules, the next three courses we've already got lined up. We're starting to uh, do some prep for those. Um, but there's going to be a SQL Server on Linux one. A lot of DBAs have never touched Linux before, but Linux is a really compelling opportunity from a SQL Server perspective. There's going to be database tuning with a purpose, and then I'm going to do one on Hyper-V. Um, eventually, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll do a couple on using SQL Server and IaaS on uh, Amazon, uh, Microsoft Azure, and Google Compute. And that way, you know, a lot of the infrastructure stuff, it's all there, but you just may not have direct access to it but you still have the same challenges. <laughs> so how do you handle that? So those are all things that we're going to be diving into with that. Wow. That's really cool. I mean, I, when I saw it on LinkedIn, I thought that's a neat idea. And I'm glad that you're, that you're getting some revenue for all that work you've built up over the years. It's, it's neat that you're doing a training course. It's one of those, I want to share how to do this stuff. I want people to call me for the hard stuff, the weird stuff, the stuff that they don't feel comfortable doing. But a lot of the stuff, I, people need to know. And we've put a pretty fair price tag on it for the work. I've got 450 hours in producing the first course. You know, there's a lot of time that goes into this stuff. And I've uh, got that out there. And yeah, it's it's fun. We've got really good feedback from it so far. And again, you know, it's, I'm able to get into the weeds with this stuff in a way that I can't do from a, a, a in-person training event session because now I can go pull and anonymize you know, different stats that customers have authorized me to share. I can set up and do really complicated labs in my lab and, you know, and record all this stuff and get it ready to go. And it's just it's, it's fun because I can go a lot deeper than I can in person. How do you, as a business owner, keep things fresh, decide what's next for you in your career? Because Sequilibrium is obviously one evolution of that, I would think, in addition to what you have been doing. Of course, the addition and delving into the different cloud technologies and, as you said, databases and IaaS together or SQL on Azure, different things, RDS on Amazon. How do you decide what's next? I just keep my eyes open. Where are people going with technology? The only constant is change. So where's the industry going? Where are the, the bleeding edge front runners going? And are they going in a direction that I think would actually be beneficial to business and people? And if so, I want to drill into that. And I just, I keep my eyes open. It's like for, for what we do, the consulting side is a lot of fun. The training education side is a lot of fun. Um, I've got a start on, believe it or not, two commercial products, both around the performance and availability tuning. Uh, I got a patent application in on one of them right now. Uh, you know, and there's, there's a lot of things that you can do. Like you, if you, if you keep your eyes open and you study where things are going and you study the past, you can start to kind of not really predict, but you can anticipate things that are coming up and you can shift what you're doing to either incorporate some of the new stuff into what you do or add an additional, I don't want to say move your direction, but add an additional direction into what you already do. You know, the, the whole act of virtualizing a SQL server 10 years ago was absolutely taboo. Nowadays, it's just an assumption at this point. What's next? Cloud. 
What's next beyond that? How do you get an IT person into the mind of the business to figure out where they need to go? And how do you understand what technology to push them into to make sure that they land appropriately? That's the interesting part with all this. That's the shift that I see has happened recently where because of the cloud with a bazillion new tools in your toolbox and with businesses with stuff kind of stuck in their ways, the shift for an IT person to be able to swing a business to take advantage and modernize certain things is a lot easier than it used to be. And that's, that's my direction that I see that I'm trying to help people get into. It's, I need to modernize those. Is it improved application architecture? Is it better disaster recovery, even just starting at the basics like that? I need to scale out this web application that's database driven. What do I do? That's the kind of stuff that you can get in front of a lot easier now because a lot of the stuff that used to be just too big of a pain to turn on and manage, now it's three clicks and a credit card at a cloud provider and you can start to use it. And that's that's empowering. It absolutely is. And how many people are at your company now? Before it was just you with your wife helping on the back end. Yeah, there's three of us full-time. There's myself, my wife, and we have a very awesome uh, sales and business development professional uh, out of the Chicago area. Uh, and we actually, uh, it sounds kind of interesting, but we have started essentially a referral network. We've got a number of folks that are similar to us, you know, uh, onesies, twosies, IT people that are really good at what they do scattered around the country. And what we do is we call each other when we need people with, you know, a database security expertise or more database development or power BI and, you know, these different areas. And essentially we can subcontract to each other. And these are all people that I've known for years. These are people I trust with my infrastructure, let alone my customers. And so we can scale as needed uh, without incurring that overhead of having full-time people on. In the past, we've had a couple of full-time techs working with us, uh, great folks. Um, they're not with us anymore. Um, but the, the scale-out model of the, the current setup that we've got, I think, works really well, especially given the changing nature of IT right now. How was that adjustment to, I would assume that all these people report up to you as the owner in some way. How was that learning to manage, or had you done that before? Never really done that before. <laughs> and honestly, I'm not great at it. Um, the good thing is with the people that we've got, um, they're all self-motivated. They're all self-guided. I hate micromanaging people. I hate second-guessing people. So all the people that we work with and work for me, I don't have to micromanage them. I don't have to second-guess them. So, I mean, technically they report to me for a lot of the stuff, but I don't care. We all work together on this stuff. We just want to fix stuff and make things better. And we all do a really good job with that. Makes my life easier because I don't like micromanaging people and I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody likes being micromanaged that I've met. Nah. No, I don't. Exactly. Yeah, I, I won't do it. Good for you. This has been an amazing discussion, David. I don't want to keep you too long here, but I do want to ask a couple more questions. Yeah. What about the best and worst career advice you've ever received? The best career advice that I got was run with what you enjoy because what you enjoy is the intersection of multiple distinct things. And the act of specializing in how multiple distinct things work together and how it relates to everything around it is really rare. And it's one of those things, if you look at a lot of people in the industry, you'll, you'll see that some of these things like, you know, just really just what I said, two things coming together that didn't seem like they relate and being good at how they come together. That's powerful, and most folks specialize in one, if they specialize at all. And again, nothing against or opposed to any of those, but if you like multiple things that work together that, quite frankly, cost a lot for a business and cause a lot of problems when they don't do things well, it makes you stronger. And I had a couple people along the years tell me to run with that because it was so unique that it was going to get some attention. And that was really cool. 
Uh, now, flip side of this, the worst career advice that I had, and I'm going to single somebody out on this one, was my, one of my high school English teachers. And she called me a moron to my face in front of my parents and said I'd never amounted to anything. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm not arrogant with any of this, but I think I'm halfway decent at what I do. I'd and say so. I enjoy what I do. <laughs> I'd say you're pretty good. On I thank you. <laughs> it's one of those I'm, you know, I'm not going to call myself the best at it. I got people that I look up to, but I can comfortably say I've made an impact and I have fun with what I do. Yeah, that's what it's all about for sure. We talked about earlier building a body of work. If there are listeners out there who haven't started doing that, what advice would you have for them on how they can get started? Because it can seem overwhelming, I think, for some people. If I've never... Well, it's not just seem, it, it is. If I've never written an article or never spoken at a user group, or maybe I'm not even in a user group. Everything that you just said directly relates to putting... And I'm going to speak as a general IT person here. Generally speaking, you're an introvert that loves knowledge, but doesn't really like to be around people, right? <laughs> realistically the act of networking with like-minded people is something that you kind of got to force yourself to start to do and in the times of COVID it's a little harder than it used to the local user groups may be virtual you may not have quite as many avenues to be able to find a lot of these things but get networking with people near you that have the same interests and this goes to any career in IT you know, like when my, my field is SQL Server, there are local SQL Server user groups. There almost every decent town in the country has at least one. And right now they're all virtual. So there are hundreds to pick from around the world. I mean, I sat in on a SQL Saturday free event in Denmark a couple of months ago. I got up early and listened in all the sessions and, you know, contributed to a couple of them. It was really cool. That is cool. I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And it's like I was laying in bed with a tablet doing the whole thing. It was great. Are you sure you weren't <laughs> laying in bed with a, with a Danish and a coffee? I wanted to. I'm just teasing. No, I mean, I got on, I got on at 3.30 a.m. Central Time, and I think it was 10.30 local time there. So they were, they were already going. I couldn't get up that early. I'm not much of a morning person. Yeah, totally understand. Um, but, yeah, network. Network with your folks find people of like-minded interest. And then to, if you're interested in getting into consulting or interested in starting to specialize when you're, when you're really focused on a general bit of IT right now, start to explore the things that you really enjoy. And if you don't enjoy any of it, look for a career change. <laughs> find the things that you really do enjoy. But if there are pieces of your job that you do enjoy, read up more on it. Start to learn something well enough that you can talk to others and guide them on how to do this stuff. And with the local user groups, there's always, you know, 10-minute sessions, five-minute presentations. Literally, I found something cool and you need to go learn about this. Click here. Check this out. You know, get started that way. You don't have to blog. You don't have to travel halfway around the world to go talk to folks. Literally, find something you enjoy. Tell somebody about it. Find, find a junior level person in that role and show them how to do a couple things. Do it again. Find the local user group. Do a 10-minute presentation, 15-minute presentation. The sense of accomplishment that I get when I see somebody in an audience go, whoa, that's cool. I'm going to take that back and learn about it. That's what it's all about. And to me, the technology discussions that I have become the marketing avenues. And it's not, it's not why I do this, but it's a great side effect uh, because you, if you talk to people, they'll remember you. If you're interested in side work, start asking people if they have things that, that you can do for them, nights, weekends, as long as your current employment agreement allows for that kind of stuff, do it. You know, do it cheap. It's fun. You enjoy it. Start to explore more on this stuff. If there's somebody in that job that you can study under the act of the apprentice, I love the concept of apprenticeship. I really think needs to be brought back into this country. You know, to me, college is 
okay, but apprenticing to see not only if you're if you enjoy something, but if you're good at it and it's something you really want to do, that hands-on stuff you just don't get in school. So mentor somebody else, be mentored by somebody else, you know, work in that direction to see if you really enjoy it. If you do, network. Get yourself out of your comfort zone and start talking to people. It's it's tough. If you're an introvert like me, getting in front of a group of people is absolutely nerve-wracking. I've been in front of 2,000 people at a conference before, and let me tell you, um, you walk up on stage, it's like, whoa, <laughs> this is really wild. I imagine it would be. Um, oh, it's it's crazy. <laughs> it's fun. You know, afterwards, you just sit back and go, wow. <laughs> yeah, but just getting to know people and they'll talk to you. They'll call you if they need something. Talk to them. Ask them if they have any needs. And start to build up that network. Because if you are actually interested in going out and doing this on your own, the generalist side of you will help you understand what you actually, you know, what you're coming from. The specialist side will help you figure out where you want to go. You put the two together, it makes you stronger at both. And the act of being the specialist with a really heavy generalist background allows you to pivot much more easily as the world changes or as your personal situation changes or your job or role changes, you know, or COVID makes everybody work from home and you can't do stuff in person anymore. <laughs> you know, it makes life really intriguing and interesting. Wow. That's, that's fantastic right there. That's what we call gold on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's tw- I'm I'm 42, and that's 25 years of IT experience telling you how to pivot right there. <laughs> Any parting thoughts for those who might be looking to start their own business? If you want to start your own business, contact me because I will give you the good, the bad, the ugly, and the blunt reality of everything you're about to get into. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And it's one of those things. Starting your own business is not, I'm going to start my own business. Go. Do you want to be a consultant for somebody else? Do you want to be a contractor? Do you want to be an independent consultant with short projects? Or how do you find the long projects? Or how do you deal with the legality system behind this? Or get health care? Do you have money saved up to get things started? Do you have a, a drop dead point where if it's not working by this point in time, I'm going to swallow my ego and go do something else? You know, these are the things that the blunt reality of starting a business is it's not easy. And I'm one of those people where I, I got lucky. It was the right place, right time, and things are working. But it's always a challenge, you know. Uh, this year has been unique. You know, a lot of people's finances are changing. Um, you know, we've been doing okay, but is this the right environment for you? And if you want to do it, I can comfortably tell you I'm never going back. I love this stuff, but it's not for everybody. And the reality check behind it can get tough. There are a lot of really hard questions that you have to have answers for beside, before you actually go do this properly. But if it's something you're really interested in doing, you can do it. You have to have two things. You have to have something that makes you special enough with what you do that people will be willing to pay you to do it. And you have to have a personal situation that's going to allow you to have the potential instability to be able to do that. If you can do that, you can do anything. Great advice. Wow. And if people want to contact you and have that conversation, what's the best way? LinkedIn? Um, either LinkedIn or honestly just the contact me form on either davidclee.net, heraflux.com, or sequilibrium.com, or honestly Twitter. Any of those, happy to set up a call. No strings attached, no marketing. I don't do that. Um, but yeah, if you're ever really interested in this, let me know. You know I'm happy to give you the the blunt and brutal and unvarnished reality. I love it but it's certainly not right for everybody. Yep, not a one-size-fits-all endeavor. Well, listen, David, I think we'll I think we'll end our discussion right there. I know there are probably many areas where we could follow up with you in the future, but I just want to say thanks for being on the show. 
I've learned a ton from this conversation. And I think we settled ah, the welcome. generalist specialist debate. It can be both. I claim that you can do both. You can and you should be both. If you enjoy it, do it. You can make it work. So thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun, and I'd love to be back for some of the, the other topics down the road because this stuff is fun. Thanks again. feel the only constant is change as David mentioned hopefully you'll agree with me that he's done a fantastic job of adapting to change throughout his career whether it's from working in different environments to learning how to own his own business to building a new business because of a pandemic and to better suit the needs of his clientele and he urges us all to continue to focus in interesting areas so that we can be mindful of what's next what should we be exploring because we need to adapt as technologists as the industry changes. I loved his advice about finding something you enjoy and telling someone about it as a way to network. Asking others if you can do side projects for them if you want to get into something new. Asking yourself, how much of my day do I dread and how much do I enjoy? But David also mentioned that this idea of being a generalist and a specialist at the same time is okay, and it's something you can do. You can be both. And you probably need both to a certain extent. Do you think we settled the generalist specialist debate, listeners? Or are there more stories to tell? Maybe you have one. We'd love to have you on the show and talk about your experiences with others so we can all learn from you. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For my buddy John White, at V Journeyman, signing off.